We are in the life uh, of Saul, King Saul, the first king of Israel, uh, the first earthly human king of Israel, because God has always been their king. But they were tired of having God as their king, the invisible king who uh, doesn't seem interested about the things in life like we're interested. And so they said to the Lord, can you give us a human king like the other nations have who will fight the kind of battles that we want to fight? And the Lord said, this is a rejection of who I am. Uh, and they, they said, but we want a king. And he said, well, this king is going to ultimately uh, make you put a yoke on you that will feel like slavery. And they said, but we want a king. Give us a king. And so King Saul, God gave them King Saul. And that's this, we're walking through the story of uh, the rise and fall of Saul. And today is essentially... Uh, the last event of Saul as king, as far as the Lord is concerned. Now, he goes on to reign for years to come, uh, but the Lord moves away from Saul um, today. So there are going to be three questions uh, I I have uh, for you. I want to invite you. I want to take a time this morning to... um, to invite you to a decision, especially if uh, a decision for believers and non-believers to decide to a decision on stepping more deeply into the Lord. And these questions will come towards the, the end of the message. So the message will build towards these, these three questions that I have. And because the first three verses has its own problem, we'll call that the introduction. Uh, and we'll work through it together. So if you will with me, read uh, 1 Samuel 15, and I'll begin in 1 and read three verses. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now you know why we don't need an introduction. Uh, The speed bump here. This is a bit of a speed bump, I think, for a lot of people. Um the way the Lord is raising up Israel and then using Israel to strike down not simply a people, but um, a completely to erase the memory of this people from the earth. There's something in us, I think, when we read this idea of don't spare the man, woman, child, infant. We read that and it pauses us because we don't feel like that God would have us do that today. That seems alien to the Christian experience. Therefore, how can, how can the Lord say that? And so, uh, we, this is not the whole message, but I do want to pause here for a little bit to, to say, how do, we, how do we deal with things when they come like this? The first thing we do when we reach a place like this in Scripture is uh, we make a faithful assumption about the Lord. What I mean to say is, if you're here and you don't believe, if you don't believe in God or you don't believe in this Bible, if this is just a story, I can't do much with that. 
Okay, and as God's people, we're committing not to do that, not to go down that path of rather than uh, deal with some difficult questions that really stress, that kind of reflect on the character of God, there's this easy out of saying, well, that's the Old Testament God, right? Or there's an easy out of saying, this is just a story, or it didn't really happen. I'm saying for the church of Jesus Christ, our first position is to say, is to assume that this is from the Lord. And then to remind ourselves that God is God. And what I mean by that is, we have to think about this account from this perspective, that God's judgments are just and right. That is, that's the starting point for the people of God, is we don't, we don't come here, I mean, we see something that's challenging, ah, We start with, I don't understand it, but I trust that God's judgments are just and right. Okay, I'm not saying, I'm not just going to leave it there, but I'm saying that's our starting point when we get to places like this. And then we begin to kind of search the text and try to understand more of what the Lord's doing. So you see here in the second verse, he says, I've noted uh, what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them along the way. In Exodus 17 and in Deuteronomy 25, there is an account of the Amalekites, the people of Amalek. And what they did in Exodus 17 is when the occasion actually happens. The people of Israel are wandering through the desert towards towards the mountain of God, okay? They're just come out of Egypt. And they're about to arrive at Mount Sinai. And they're weary and faint. And the Amalekites look down on the people and they see that they're vulnerable. And they swoop down and they assault the stragglers. The women and children. The weak. And a battle ensues. This is the battle, by the way, if you remember the story where Joshua's warring on the field and Moses is praying like this to the Lord and when his arms would fall, the Amalekites would rise up. But as long as he kept his arms raised, the Israelites were victorious and so people held his arms the whole battle. They held his arms to make this battle happen. That's, that's this battle. That's Exodus 17. But the Lord, at the end of the day, at the end of that battle says, says about the Amalekites, I saw that. I saw that, and my people will not forget it. Nobody messes with God's people when he's in the middle of making his promise known. When God's saying, I'm going to take you to a beautiful land, I'm going to protect you and guard you, the Lord's saying, you do not do that. And he marks the people of Amalek and says, because you did that to my people, I will blot you from history. The people are once again reminded in Deuteronomy 25 the very same thing. The Lord says to them, when you get to your land and you're comfortable and you're settled in and you have peace around you, he says, don't forget what Amalek did to you. Because what they did was wrong. So at one level, when we look in here, we see the difficulty of, the harsh difficulty of the consequences. But at least we can see that at, at some level, that this isn't as though God is being capricious and just picking somebody out of nowhere for Saul to go kill. But rather, there's a, there's a pretty long backstory to in one in which where the Lord has sworn by his name that, that he would gain justice for the people of Israel. 
But here's another, another way that we can, we can learn from this or, or develop this idea. The Old Testament, okay, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures tell a story of how God interacted with people on earth, okay, and we get the color and the detail of that story, that when we finally arrive in the New Testament, in the life of Christ, what Jesus does is he lifts that story off the page and he pushes us up in a spiritual reality. That's, that's the motion of Scripture, is we see with color and detail. In fact, what, what's happening is the Lord wants to describe himself to us. And so in the, 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 the Hebrew Testament, the Old Testament, in that the Lord is describing his attributes to us in ways that we can see and feel and touch and understand. So that when we arrive in Christ, Jesus can say, my kingdom is not of this world, but we still have something to understand his kingdom by. And that's what we need to do when we arrive places, like difficult places like this, because we know now, we know now that the Lord is not going to say to our church, rise up therefore and go down to Ellesmere and strike the Ellesmereans. Sorry. Uh, this is the first place that came to my mind. Yeah, we know he's not going to do that. We know he's not going to do that. We know that, that that's not what, what's But what the Lord what does want us to know is if we lift the idea, what's being said about the Lord here, if we lift that up the, off the page and make it a spiritual reality, we do know this. Okay, in this, okay, let for a second the earthly colorful details of who's going to die just fade and allow the, the spiritual reality kind of come into play, which is this. God does not forget when his people are hurt. That feels good. Because we forget when we're hurt. There's a sense where the Lord is saying, listen, I remember when evil was done to you, even when you've forgotten that evil was done to you. We have a promise of a God who has a perfect memory and a searching eye, and he sees everything. There's a sense, when we read about problems that are bigger than us, we, human trafficking, uh, the drugs, all of these things that are larger than, larger than poverty, uh, the broken home, the brokenness of the family, things that extend beyond even our, our spiritual capacity to understand. We know this, God did not miss what happened. And he is perfectly just. And God's people should be encouraged by that. All right, well, let's move into the story. Is there any doubt in your mind, though, what is expected of Saul? Leave nothing alive. Okay. Let's read the next several verses. I'll read four through nine. So... Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, 
the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Was there any doubt in your mind what Saul was supposed to do? Was the Lord ambiguous? If we're thinking, well, maybe Saul didn't understand the backstory. Maybe it's an honest mistake. He didn't really understand the story of the, of the Amalekites from Exodus 17 and Deuteronomy 25. I have to challenge that with the fact that he seems to be very keenly aware of all the nuances with the Kenites. He seems to know that backstory pretty well. What I mean to say is he seems fairly nuanced in Hebrew history. You know, here's, this is the irony. It's not funny irony. It's, the irony is we struggle with, oh, women, children, infants. How can that happen? They didn't struggle with that. They didn't seem to have any problem doing that. It was the calves and the oxen that they struggled with, which, by the way, just to kind of humble our human nature, is exactly our nature. We, I think, have a harder time destroying that kind of stuff than we do undermining someone's human nature. So if we can, for a moment, step back and just canvas the human experience, we kill people all the time, but destroying the plunder is so difficult. They leave the king alive, right? The king alive and the good animals, the fat ones, is essentially the intonation of the scripture. The ones that are worth anything, they preserve. And it's not just Saul. It says it's Saul and the people. That's what it said in verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag. Now, why would you spare Agag the king? Because what would your prospects be if you were a king who was known for killing other kings next time you went into battle? Do you ever notice, this is the classic white-collar crime, the executives never go to prison. They care for themselves. The top cares for itself. That's what I believe is happening here. It's, it's, there's a... It, you know, a kingly brotherhood of, hey, you know, what happens on the battlefield stays on the battlefield. Listen, you know, we all, we all come from a common... That's what's happening here. Is let's, let's not cross a diplomatic line and let's plunder. It seems to be what's happening here. Now, what's the difference? We should ask, what's the difference? What's the difference between the overall difference in the mark of history as to, as to the Israelites coming against the Amalekites and utterly destroying them, man, woman, child, infant, oxen, cattle, donkey, camel? Okay, What's the difference between that and what they did? Because it makes all the difference. The former example of total desolation 
tells the story of justice, or at least vengeance. It tells a story that the Amalekites had done something wrong and were being dealt with about it. And if, if someone were to dig into that story, what they would hear was, well, a long time ago, the Amalekites tampered and meddled and killed and went after the people of Yahweh, and Yahweh remembered. And the story would be, this is what happens to the people who would disregard Yahweh. I mean, I have to think. Think of it this way. If you're an Amalekite sitting on a cliff looking down at the Israelites, you're looking at them marching with the ark and the cloud leading them. The God leading them through the desert. And then you attack. So the former is not an the former is saying God cares about his people. The latter example of, of plunder, right? Kill the people, let's take the stuff, that just talks about conquest. That's the difference. Is in the first one, you have the sense of God hates evil. That's what can be preached. Had Saul been faithful, we could show that God hates evil. That's what the story would have told. But now we're stuck in something more like Saul and the people are securing and improving their position in life. That's the story that is now told. What I'm saying is, is King Saul repurposed the entire battle. He took the purpose of the battle out of God's hands and repurposed it. All right. Let's keep reading. Let's read uh, 10, 11, and 12. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Now listen to this. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told, Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. So you have these two different scenes. You have a scene of the Lord and Samuel commiserating with one another. It's almost the image we're given. This God's not regretting his decision as though God made a mistake. You need to remind yourself, Saul was never God's idea. God didn't make a mistake. God said to the people, Saul's a mistake. Or a king is a mistake. You don't want a king like all the other people. If you do that, they'll do this. But they said, give us a king. So the Lord gave them a king. So the kind of regret that the Lord is, that's being expressed in scripture is the regret that a parent has for a child when you know they're going down the wrong path, but you still are trying to shepherd them along the way. You, you know, don't do, yeah, she's nice. Oh, she's coming for Thanksgiving. Oh. Right? And then you get into, you put on your, because you know, like how much can I say before they whatever me? So you're trying to shepherd and guide and shepherd and guide and, and care, but it, it's not your mistake, it's their decision. It's just you're trying to do the best for them and it goes south. That's the kind of regret that's being expressed here in Scripture. Is because God didn't leave the Israelites because they left God. God followed along and said, well, if you're going to demand an earthly king, I'm going to work to make that earthly king godly. And that has failed. There's regret. 
So in the one sense, you have this image of Samuel and Saul. Samuel is weeping before the Lord, grieving as though someone has died. And over here, Saul is building a monument to himself. He goes to Carmel to memorialize himself, and then he goes to Gilgal to make sacrifice, which we don't need to spend a lot of time on because we, this is our natural course of things. So this is how we work. We lean against the statue to ourselves as we talk about, oh yeah, God, praise the Lord for that. We crushed it. Praise the Lord. So they meet. Let's read 13 through 19. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribe of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Now there's so much that could be said here, but I want to focus, I want to focus on one sentence here. Samuel says in 17, though you are little in your own eyes. Did God not appoint you king over Israel? This is diagnosing Saul. This, all, the whole time we've been saying, that looks like Saul's fearful. That looks like Saul's fearful. It looks like Saul has fear in him. It looks like Saul's fear in him. Right here, Samuel takes the heart of Saul, puts it on the table and opens it up and just diagnoses it for all to see. He's saying, Saul, though you're little in your own eyes, why could you not trust in God? He was behind you. Saul is the tallest man in Israel. And he's little in his own eyes. He's fearful. He's insecure. He feels weak. He feels his position is precarious. He feels vulnerable and threatened and poor and compromised, not adequate, insecure. God says to him, despite how you view yourself, Why hasn't it mattered that I've been behind you the whole time? That's the question. Saul, I know you're little in your own eyes, but don't you recall that I appointed you king and I anointed you?
This is the challenging and frustrating tragedy of Saul. How, he does, how is it that he doesn't own his identity in the Lord? And I think this story, the story of Saul, plays itself out in our own lives in various different ways. That we, we could ask the same question of us, because are we not in some way chosen? Are we not in some way God's elect, God's glorious ones, his children, his adopted, heirs to his throne, co-heirs with Christ? Are we not all of those things? And yet, are you still so little in your own eyes? Here's the question. It's the first question of the morning. Are you, like Saul, small in your own eyes? For several weeks now, this question has been coming. The, the power of fear to make us small. The, the, our inability to get past our own. This is what happens is we hide behind the rock of our old selves. When God has so much in store, all the things that God says for us, all the things that he's promised for us, that should bolster us up. That should make us strong. That we are, we're, we're encouraged in the word. That we are not our old selves, but we are in fact a new creation. We quote all the time, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Do you say that or do you live that? And listen, this is not self-esteem sermon. God is not saying that, oh, you're not small, you're huge. God's not saying you're actually great. You could be small and weak. What God's saying is, I have said something about you, and my word has power. That's what he's saying. He's not trying to make you feel as though, as though your smallness isn't small. He's trying to make you understand that his greatness is beside, behind your smallness, that his shadow is what's casting in front of you. And yet we can't get past. We, we hide behind our old self. I can do all things. Why? Because God made me awesome? No, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He's saying, did I not appoint you? Don't I know you? Are you not blessed? There's a sense in the Lord, in the word and in the Christian life that around God I feel smaller than I am and bigger than I am. When I compare myself to the Lord, I get so small. You know, it's like as you climb Mount of Calvary towards the cross. You get smaller and lower and lower and thin. Thin, like you can barely even cover the rocks to get up there. You're so small. And then you get up there, and in Christ you become big. That's, that is the Christian life. He's not trying to make you big. It's in our smallness before the Lord. We are so great in Christ. He takes the least and the worthless and the foolish things of this world to confound the powerful things and the wise things of this world. We should have a response like this. Though I am small in my own eyes, am I not anointed by the Lord? That should be a, a, a victory cry for God's people, not a, not a cry of failure and defeat like it is here in the verse. my prayer this morning that 
Some of you would come out from behind yourself. Do what you need to do. Be obedient and strong in the Lord. And how much more relevant is this question for us as a church? I mean, if it hits home as an individual, we are the body of Christ. We are the body of the anointed king. So though we are small in our own estimation, have we not been anointed and charged and commissioned and blessed and sent? I mean, that is a tremendous question to ask. Let's see how Saul reacts, verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. This is, this, by the way, this is his frantic read here, frantic justification, nervous excuses, cornered, nervous, right? I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted to the, Amalekite, the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep, oxen, and the best of things, devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord He has rejected you from being king. Now you have this frantic excusing in the front end. Justifications and all. But despite that, despite even the fact that maybe some of the plunder was going to be sacrificed to the Lord as a token. Obviously we are not supposed to believe that for a second. Okay, read, lie. Okay, but even if some of it was going to be sacrificed, the logic behind it is sinful. I disobeyed the Lord so that I could please him with sacrifice. That's like you stealing out of the tithing plate so that your tithe could be greater. I stole out of the offering plate to give you more, Lord. That's, that's the logic that's being applied here. It says, rather than obey you, I'll disobey you and then glorify you. To which Samuel says, can you just obey? The magic of the Christian life is obedience. It's hard, and yet it's so simple. Just obey. Christ says, remain in me and I in you. This is how I know if you're remaining in me, if you keep my commandments. We cannot, we cannot divorce obedience. And I'm not saying, look, every one of us knows, so the most humble Christian in here, sometimes these sorts of words fall hardest on them because they're like, oh, I broke a rule. I, I, I'm not obeying, I'm not obeying. Listen, I'm talking about a spirit of obedience. I'm talking about a heart. Here's the question, here's the question. Is your faith anchored in desiring to do what God wants you to do? That's the question. 
Is your religious experience, is what you call the Christian faith, is it connected to wanting to please the Lord through obedience? I'm not asking if you can. I know we all make mistakes. I'm asking, is the seed of desire there? Is that the leading desire? Do you, when you mess up, say, Lord, I'm going to do better tomorrow? Not because I'm justified in it, but because I want to do better tomorrow. I want to please you. I'm just, if you're, if on the way towards decision, if I'm inviting you to ask a question, I would say this. Are you little in your own eyes? And does what God says about you have any effect? If it doesn't, let me put you at ease. You are not in the body of Christ. Now you know where you sit. Do you have a heart that desires to obey the Lord because of God is great and mighty and awesome? If you don't, you're not in the Lord. God can reject you as his child. I mean, at least you want to know. You want to know where you are, right? I'm just saying, you're not actually a believer. Let's start there. At least have some clarity and comfort on our identity. God just wants a heart that desires to obey. In fact, remember our study in Romans? He gives us a righteousness, but now a righteousness has been given. And so he gives us a righteousness, which is not our own, but it is the Lord's. But then what he does is he puts in us a spirit, a spirit of righteousness that then changes our desires and our motivations to be righteous. You should know if that is in you. It's when your conscience is your ally, defending and convicting at the same time so that you point towards the Lord. Do you have that yearning? Okay, one more question. I'll invite you into one more question. I'll read 24 to 28. Saul said to Samuel, he broke him. This is what happens. Right? Called his bluff. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. See? There it is. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow down before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robes and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Let's stop there. Right in front of us. So Saul remains king on earth for several more years. But as far as the Lord is, he's done. He's dead. It's just like this, in the same way that in Genesis 3, Right, there was the warning, you shall not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. They ate it, did they die that day? No. But on that day, they were as good as dead. They were dead man walking. 
It's the same way the, Lord, the Lord's words are when he says, you are dead in your transgressions. Even though you're walking around going, I don't feel dead in my transgressions. He's saying you're as good as dead. The verdict is out. The judge has made the, the decision. You are dead. This is what's happening. Saul is alive though dead. He's like a dead man walking. Because everything in his life is devoted to the things he sees in this life. His 72 and a half years, or 80, some of you are beating the average, whatever, 84 years, 96 years, 99 years, whatever it is, that space of time is all that's in front of him. So his life is all that matters, and in that being the case, he's dead. Though he's alive, he's dead, is what's being said here. You're done. Is that you? Are you so preeminently concerned with the days right in front of you now that you have no concern for eternity? Because you've rejected me, I've rejected you, says the Lord here. The, the message of Christ is such the opposite. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die, and even if he died, he'll live. Though you dead, you'll live. That's the message of Jesus. Though you die, you'll live. The, 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 the conviction of sin is though you're alive, you're dead. Is the Lord your God? I'm going to bow some prayer. I invite you to, to ask that question before the Lord. You don't need to come down. You don't need to raise a hand. You just need to be honest between yourself and the Lord. And if in this time, in this prayer, in this moment of honesty, you are ready to change your opinion or you're willing to confess, I was dead, but I desire to live. I was disobedient, but I desire to be obedient. I was so small, but I see God's greatness. If, if that is in you, I'll say at the end of the day in prayer, find, find the person, A, the person who brought you here and tell them, bless them with that. Right? And if they're not around or if you moseyed in, come find me and I'll build a mining to myself and feel good about it. No, no, right? We'll pray together and we'll, we'll, we'll take next steps. But these are points of decision, aren't they?